Hello and welcome to Why It Matters. This is a podcast for leaders who know that relevance is a moving target. I'm Michael Goff and I'm the Strategy Director at Spark Studio. This is a collection of interviews with leaders who are passionate about something that is being overlooked. Sometimes that will be a brand, a product or a service, but it can also be an idea, something that has lost its value for many. And to re-express relevance, you need someone with vision. You need to think so carefully about what it is that makes you different in terms of your clients and speak to your clients and ask them because they'll give you the answers and you can create your copy around that. So a lot of the time I interview clients to find out their story and how they benefited and what their experience was like before, how they felt before they met the advisor, what the advisor did and how they feel afterwards. According to the Money and Pension Service, one in three UK adults say thinking about their financial situation makes them worried. And 24 million UK adults don't feel confident managing their money. Financial illiteracy is a real issue in the UK. And there is a fantastic opportunity for financial advisors to communicate clearly, concisely and compellingly about the difference they can make. So in this episode, I speak with Faith Liversedge, a marketing consultant, about why financial communication matters. Welcome, Faith, to Why It Matters. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much, Michael. Lovely to be here. Just to start off, give us a bit of context. Where are you based at the moment? What's the, the view out the window? Where, where where in the world are you? I'm in Edinburgh and it's really, really sunny for once. So it's lucky. And um, yes, yeah, so I've been up here for a while, but I'm originally from Hampshire. So no, I really love it up here. It's lovely, actually, compared to living in London, where it was very, very kind of complicated and hard work and not earning very much money. I moved there just after graduating and I thought it would be very glamorous and it was the opposite. So... <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. But no regrets. You stayed there and have enjoyed it ever since. Wonderful. Yeah. And and you're involved in, uh, you run a consultancy with financial services. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so I work with financial advisors. So small one-man bands, larger companies, also providers and fintech companies. So I provide um, website services and content marketing for them and also consultancy. Brilliant. And how long have you been doing that? This will be my fifth year, I think. So I have a history. I started off in journalism and then I moved into financial services when I moved up to Edinburgh, funnily enough, um, because you can't not work in financial services if you work in marketing and you want to sort of get around and get on. So I did my time in the big providers, Standard Life, Raw London, Prudential, and then I went to Rat Platform Nucleus, which is where I kind of got very, very hands-on on all sorts of things that were happening at that time. For example, social media was kind of in its infancy in terms of everybody, but especially in terms of financial services companies. And because Nucleus was a relatively small company and it was a disruptor and it was fairly new, it could be quite challenging with those things and try things out and use things that didn't have to go through compliance in the same way that you did with big providers. It was much more fast moving and much more reactive and responsive. And so from a marketing perspective, you could experiment with all of those different things, see what worked, see what didn't, see what people thought of it and have that dialogue and have that kind of data coming back all the time about what people loved or didn't love about your marketing approaches. So it was a really big learning curve that I went on during that. And then um, as I sort of evolved and wanted to move on, I realized that there was a big opportunity to help advisors with their marketing because compared to other industries, as we know, it's quite far behind. It's quite stayed. It's quite safe. Obviously, there's a reason for that. There's lots of compliance to get through. So it's not traditionally the sort of place where you'd go to for something brightly colored or with a very relaxed tone of voice, but you can't stay like that forever. So obviously, people are aware that they have to move on but there's a big concern about how they do that 
compliantly and also professionally. So it's a kind of, um, it's not something that is obvious and it depends on your own company as well and your own audience. Um, so you can't suddenly sort of stick it all on, stick a label on and say, right, we've got this cool website now, it's fine. It's a bit more nuanced than that. So that's what I help people to navigate so that they're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, trying to do the equivalent of dad dancing and trying to sort of get down with the next generation by using the wrong language or using the wrong stock photography or not not you know, not doing that stock thing where everyone just uses the same images of people on the beach and talks about your lifetime goals and all mm. of that thing. So mm. there's different different things to it. And it's, yeah, I, I don't think it's an easy thing to navigate. So I help people with that and help them to feel comfortable and in control of their message. What are the common assumptions that are held within financial services about brand and marketing? I suppose the advisors think that it's it's not their kind of forte. It's probably the opposite of what their skill set is all about. Um, just as it is for me, I'm not a numbers person, but I'm very creative. And for them, they they you know creative. You know, obviously everyone can write, um, but unless you sort of write every single day, it's not your favorite thing to do, and you don't have time. Lots of people worry about the right imagery to use. There's all sorts of things because it's not something that it comes easily to people who are looking at financial plans and doing that part of their role. Yeah. So, and also I think there is a bit of skepticism around how much this might cost and what they're actually going to get. Because when people think about marketing, they think about big agencies with big budgets yeah. and, um, you know, big drinks cabinets and leather chaise lounges in the office and things. And you sort of wonder, well, where is my money actually going? Yeah. And in the past, I think the reason for those big budgets and those those perceptions was that you could actually get away with spending a lot of money and not really give much return to people. Mm. So before we had all this data that's available now, um, we were just putting posters on the sides of buses and things and hoping that people saw them. But you would hardly know once that person came through your door, whether they'd seen that bus um, it's really hard to kind of trace it back to the cost. Mm. Um, and now it's completely different. But I don't think many people are aware of that. So I think that's maybe something that's holding them back and they feel a little bit intimidated about it. And, you know, like I said, it's not their kind of forte and they don't really know what they're looking for. And also it's really subjective. So lots of people will start off by creating their own logo, get a friend to do it or a family member. And it's what they like, but it might not look professional. It might not stand out. It might not um, really sort of cater towards their audience because lots of people are kind of so into their own business and got their head down that they're looking at it from the their perspective rather than their end client's perspective so there's a lot of complications where it comes where you get this personal preference thing for things you really like Mm. and I suppose the challenge that I come across a lot is to kind of free people from that and to try and explain to them that it's not really about you of course it is to an extent it's your business it's your baby but you also need to consider the context of where that logo and that website and that message is sitting and also more importantly the end client that you really want to get in in front of what what are their problems what are their what's their current situation what are their perceptions those are the things that you need to be thinking about more carefully than whether you love the color pink or you know all of that kind of stuff so it's quite a personal thing that you um, have to navigate sometimes with someone when it comes down to taste. I, I think certainly in our experience, uh, we've worked with a few financial services businesses. And I think there's also most of the businesses grow, grow through some level of word of mouth referral. 
Mm. So there's a there's an assumption that well the word will just get out that we're good and therefore the inbound inquiries will come and actually almost that it's it's not quite a traditional sales route but it is that sense in which you know we just need to do a good job word will spread and then and that that will grow and I guess that will work to a certain extent but it always plateaus doesn't it there's the sense in which you then if you then want to push on from a growth point of view you've actually then got to think about well where else can we create that awareness. And also, you know, if we are largely a referral business and reliant on referrals, how are we using our brand to maximise how that narrative gets told and what we say about ourselves and how we inform that referral so that so the inbound inquiries become a kind of quality lead rather than just a kind of waste of time? That's it. Yeah, it's really important at the moment because there's lots of stats that have come out um, regarding the last two years when we've been in this pandemic and lead generation has been an even bigger challenge for advisors. But then on top of that, you've got this really kind of unbalanced demographic where you've got a lot of advisors' clients are very elderly or of the older generation approaching retirement, post-retirement. And there's this big need to connect with their children in order to not lose that wealth when those clients die off. So that's why there's two kind of different things at play there, kind of forcing the need to create some kind of strategy that isn't just relying on word of mouth and referrals. And that's another really good point about the fact that because this industry is so different and it is reliant on word of mouth and referrals and it is reliant on one or two or four or five long-term clients leads a month let's say it's not mass market so when we were talking before about why people worry about marketing it's because it's a completely different beast when you're talking about financial services you're not looking for thousands of likes or thousands of hits or thousands of email opens you're looking for consistency and a quality conversation and personal content that stands out that connects with the right people and it might be a very very tiny group of people but that's more effective than trying to appeal to everybody and if you did appeal to everybody and got tons of hits then you'd be filtering all of them out and you'd be wasting a lot of time anyway because you don't want to work with those people most advisors want to work with high net worth individuals or people who are accumulating in that way yeah and picking up that point about that sort of succession planning and, and the kind of management of wealth across generations i guess one of the, the the key challenges at that point is is for the advisor to to demonstrate relevancy of their services to to the kind of next generation and one of the things that's got me thinking about recently is just just the reality of financial illiteracy uh, that exists within the UK that we're just we're not really certainly within the state system we're not really kind of taught financial literacy Um, and I wonder whether there's a bit of an opportunity for financial advisors to actually set their stalls out as being a kind of essential provider of financial perspectives in order for them to demonstrate their value beyond just the kind of you know usual lines of you know providing a good performance and looking after the next generation's wealth. Mm, I think that also is helpful and plays well because there's a lot of obviously alternatives to investing that people can do that by themselves. They can go online and DIY invest and all that kind of thing. And there's a big misunderstanding about what a financial advisor or financial planner can actually do. And there's a lot more to it than that. It's not just about performance. And actually, lots of people are moving away from that because they don't want to be judged on that. Um, They want to be judged on the other things. But those other things are very soft and subtle and invisible. So they're things like coaching and behavioral science and helping people not make silly mistakes and helping them to keep on track towards their long-term goals, almost like 
a personal trainer in a way. And obviously the, the big thing that most advisors and planners talk to me about how they make their clients feel is empowered and educated and clear about their finances. And this is to their demographic, which, as I said, is fairly old. So people might not even know that they can retire tomorrow because they just have no idea about their own circumstances. And when you think, well, that's your own money that you worked hard to create all your life and you don't actually understand it. And I completely get that because I, I, you know, I have a financial advisor, I have a pension, but I, I just skim over it. I don't want to really know too much about it. I want the advisor to know all about that himself and just tell me the small bits. And so the bits that I want to know are, like you say, make just make it clear, make it obvious, make it seem um, not as I think it's going to be, which is complicated and um, intimidating and make me feel silly, make me feel stupid. You know, there's lots of intelligent people that go to advisors and I speak to them a lot and say, I didn't like the per- the previous advisor because he made me feel stupid and I'm not, mm. I'm like a director in the NHS or something. But the reason that I'm going to an advisor is because obviously I don't know, otherwise I'd do it myself. So that's what the advisor, the first thing that they do is make their clients feel great. But if you're a lay person and you haven't seen an advisor yet, or you don't know what they do, then you don't know that. So the the trick is to translate that value that you give people when they're already your client into some marketing and some content and some messaging so that people who aren't yet your clients can understand that. So that's where I always advocate series of blogs for people to show that they're A, approachable because your website content might not be as colloquial or in the same kind of vein as your blog posts. It might be very high level. It might be quite informational. But your blog is really where you can demonstrate your personality, your approachability, your relevance, which is such an important word. And this is the word that I think can help people to not get into that patronizing or inappropriate or awkward position that they feel where they have to show that they're in touch and down with the people. But, you know, you want to get it. It just has to be relevant. That's all it has to be is you need to be talking about things that are important to people. And so you can also use that as your educational support piece as well in terms of that literacy part, which is, you know, talking about things like cryptocurrency or inflation or just taking your your version of things, your interpretation of all of that stuff that gets talked about and put it in your own terms and explain it in your own way and use your own examples of your own life. And that's where blogging is so great because you can do all of that in a very consistent, engaging way. And if you send that out in your email newsletters to your clients and encourage them to share it with others, then you're already giving them something that enables referring and recommendations to be made really easily. Yeah, and I guess that speaks to the point of of a knowing your audience, so being really clear about what your your audience expects of you and your market, and then and then developing a position on those topics. I mean, you mentioned their inflation. Inflation at the moment is all over the news, isn't it, with the kind of cost of living hikes that are going on through a number of factors but to have in layman's terms a kind of straightforward explanation of what inflation is and why it's significant and the impact it's going to have on savings and on investments is or you i can imagine you could almost take it for granted couldn't you that that people understand what these terms mean when actually the reality is that most of us most of us don't and that illiteracy is pervasive across the across the society it is there's there's so much and we talk about these things in day-to-day terms but when people think about how it relates to themselves and their own situation they might even if they know what it means on the you know bbc six news they don't might not know what it means for them and so that's where the advisor can be that that missing piece of interpreting it for them 
calming their fears, just in the way they did at the beginning of the pandemic, when there were lots and lots of people suddenly emailing everybody. And lots of that's when I started to really step up my content marketing for people, because suddenly, if you weren't sending an email out regularly, then you would really want to be doing that at that time to show that you were contacting your clients, that you were aware that they might be worried and that you would be able to put their minds at rest and give them some encouraging messages during that really awful, really unpredictable time. In talking about um, the kind of last last two years and the challenges of the last two years, I think I was reading in the Financial Times that the one in three EU households had no provision for finances in the event of a crisis. And obviously we've gone through one of the kind of biggest seismic crises in in living memory. Um, and it's striking, you know, that piece there around just the financial awareness of planning and budgeting that is just not part of our psyche because it's just not been part of our process just reinforces there's a real opportunity, isn't there, for financial services and financial advisors to actually say, okay, we can really help for moments like this. Yes. Yeah. I think the, the pandemic has given it context for that because people have thought, what happens if you know, if I'm left destitute, I don't have anything. And there has been a lot more uptake in protection insurance, I think, because of that, because it has given us a really, a real test, a real sort of live version of what that might look like. But yeah, traditionally, it's just not the thing we want to spend our money on. It's just, it's invisible, it's complicated, it's potentially going to be, we're going to be ripped off. You know, there's so many scare stories that you hear about people's pensions and people being diddled out of things by horrible men in shiny suits. And <laughs> it just doesn't give people a very good feel about it. And you're putting a lot of faith into somebody to help you. You have to give them so many details about your own personal circumstances, your own finances. You feel you might be judged. You feel like you should have been saving more than you have. There's all of these things that are going to make you feel that you don't want to go and speak to someone about this thing. It's like the last thing on your list. And no one wakes up in the morning thinking, well, today I've just got to sort my pension out. It's just one of those things that can just roll away in the background until you know you get to the age when you you have to do it. And that's not going to be helpful when we're for the younger demographic and the younger generation. It's all right for the baby boomers because they're relatively wealthy. But for other people who haven't got anything else to fall back on, it's going to be very difficult. And of course, there are now loads of different ways to get people interested in money. There's apps, there's all sorts of things you can do where you save the change of your coffee and put it into a savings account, yes. things like that, yeah. which is great. But then there's a big gap between that and going to see an advisor in a suit that their parents might have used. It's like, well, how does that equate with what I've got on my phone? It just doesn't seem to go together. And then you've got all of these sorts of get rich quick schemes with cryptocurrency and things like that. And it's like, well, this is really exciting. I can get my head around this. This is way more interesting than putting my money with a fund manager who's going to pick something. And even if they knew that was the alternative, you know, it's 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 hard to kind of join the dots together and make a coherent message out of all of these different things that we know about money and we fear about money and we feel about money. But it's actually everywhere, you know, all the dramatic films and dramas and even soap operas, you know, it's all, all the storylines are based around money because it just affects us in so many ways. And yet to actually get our heads around it and what we need to do for ourselves requires, you know, concentration and thought and it's not the thing that we want to do. So what are the common pitfalls for marketing financial services that, that need to be avoided? 
I think going back to my previous answer was to try not to look at mass market or retail approaches and don't get distracted by gurus on Instagram who are going to tell you this is how you need to get 200 people sign up for your online course because it's just not really about that. The pitfalls really are to start from scratch is to obviously have a relevant looking website. So going back to that word relevant again. Um, it needs to look like it's up to date because if you go on something that was created or last updated in 2012 or something, it's not going to give you confidence that this person is really up to the, up to speed on what what they need to be talking about and what, how they're going to help you. And also, the the personal aspect of it is so key now because we're so used to messages and marketing being personalised to us. This is what's really spoiled us. And so if you go onto a website and it looks like it's just something bland that's there to appeal to everybody, how am I, for example, as a self-employed business owner, going to imagine that this guy or lady who seems very, very removed and maybe slightly traditional and slightly behind the times because they've got a stock photo on their website, how is that going to make me feel like I'm going to be understood by them? So you've got to really, first of all, think about your target audience and then think about how they're going to approach you and what their situation is going to be. And think about your website because that's your digital business card. And then think about how you want that website to function. So maybe you'll be resting on your laurels with your referrals and that'll be fine. But if you want to move on from that, then think about having a gated piece of content that's going to appeal to a prospect, whatever that might be. And it needs to be something that's that is really appealing. So lots of people have gated brochures on their websites that are just more about them and meet the team and things like that. That's not the place for that because no one is going to search on a, on Google to say, show me the team of my local advisor. They're going to put a search term in like, how do, how do I deal with all these different pension pots that I've got? Like, what do I do? Where do I start? So that's the, the piece of the freebie that you want to give to people in exchange for their email address. And once you've got a list of prospects, then you want to start emailing them. So the email that you're hopefully sending your current clients, tweak that, send that to your prospect list, and then you're keeping them warm for as long as possible because this is a slow burn purchase that no one's going to buy from you straight away or book a call with you straight away. But if you've got their email address, then you've got that dialogue with them for six months to a year and you just don't know when they might be ready to speak to you. And so showing your relevance and your support and your educational and, and your personality throughout those posts throughout the year is going to hopefully show them what you're made of. And then they're in the comfort of their, their own home and they've seen you first. So there's not this sort of power imbalance. They know more about you than you know about them. So then they'll be more inclined to speak to you. They're not going to then think, yeah, okay, great. I'm ready to speak to a financial advisor. I'm going to go and Google someone now. They're going to go to you because they already kind of feel like they know you, um, especially if you've given them that really personalized content. So those are the two things. So a website, regular content, and from that, uh, one way of doing regular content is to create content from your blog post and make that into a newsletter and then make those pieces into social media posts so that you're um, sending people back to your website as much as possible. So again, you're creating one main piece of content and it's mainly for your current clients, but you're also using that to get in front of prospects. So maybe there'll be people on LinkedIn or Twitter that will see you. And again, it's subtle, it's a slow burn, but at least you're out there then and you're doing something that raises yourself above the parapet. Absolutely. I think one of the other things that we encourage when we're, we're working uh, in this sector is, is think about the competition and who else is out there and the way that the competition talks about themselves. And one of the exercises that we encourage uh, our clients to do is, you know, grab 
your own about us statement from the website, uh, anonymize it so there's no reference to the company name, stick it alongside another eight or nine competitors and their about us statement, forget about it for a couple of days, then come back to it and look at it and notice the common themes that, that, the, that each one is talking about. And what we notice time and time again is that everyone talks about their, their professional service, they talk about their performance, uh, they talk about their approachability, but you know the point of a brand is that you've got to be able to create choice. And if everyone's saying the same thing, then there's no choice in the marketplace. It's much harder to... So that's when you do have to lean on referrals and recommendations. But it just seems to me that there's a massive opportunity for financial advisors to actually just create a much more personal voice that is rooted in their experience and value of what their advice can do for people that, that just isn't getting told in a way that's compelling and distinctive. Yes, you're absolutely right. I love the, the idea of that exercise because I think the thing is that it's so hard. You have to really think hard about what it is that makes you different. And it's easier just to write the paragraph that talks about when you launched and how many awards you've got. And that's that tick box tick. But you're right. Everyone's got that. And it's it's funny because these things change like everyone's innovative now. But a few years ago, probably that would be a great thing to differentiate yourself against. But now everyone's doing that. So you have to keep these things fresh as well. And you have to keep the answer to all of this is, you need to think so carefully about what it is that makes you different in terms of your clients and speak to your clients and ask them because they'll give you the answers and you can create your copy around that. So a lot of the time I interview clients of clients to find out their story and how they benefited and what their experience was like before, how they felt before they met the advisor, what the yeah. advisor did and how they feel afterwards. And that's where you get the really, really great information because they won't even speak to their advisor about that a lot of the time because it, we're British and it's too awkward and embarrassing and we've paid someone to help us and all of that. But if they speak to a third party, you can get people getting really emotional sometimes. And there's so many different ways that people help. It's not just about, oh, he gave me peace of mind or, um, you know, I feel empowered. It's it's very, very subtle differences that people feel. And yeah, it quite can be quite moving. And it's not something that a sort of non-client would even consider Mm. Um, but, and you couldn't really even relay that in your own copy either. It's not like you could say we make people, you know, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't wash. But if you have your high level messages alongside this stuff, then it kind of layers up and comes together and starts to make sense. And they start to prove your client stories, start to prove what you've said on other pages. And then people can start to believe you. I think, I think that's how it works. Yeah. I, th I think those loyalist interviews are really integral, aren't they? To actually, you know, why do people keep coming back and finding out? what's driving them i think another aspect is the founder's story as well often yes. financial advisors uh, it's someone who's come out of an existing bigger business because of some sense of frustration or disappointment or you know something isn't going well and so they've decided to strike out for themselves mm. getting some insight from the founder as to what is actually what was the the initial the itch or the niggle that they said actually this needs fixing and being able to look 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 to that heritage and and work out how much of that can carry through to a to a, to to the brand now uh, yes. is also an opportunity. Yeah, that's a great one. And it's not until people really think about it that they realise they've got their own little story because there's all some reason why we've gone into our professions, even though it may be from way way back and we may have forgotten all about it. But there's probably something if you dug it back up, you would realise there's a reason that you're here. And so it's not just that you you know, you want to help people, which most people do. If you didn't 
want to help people, there'd be something a bit wrong with you. So you can't say things like that. You need to sort of back it up with something a bit more meaningful, especially in this profession, because otherwise people will think, well, why did you get into it? You got into it for the money, didn't you? So you you don't want them to think that. So you need to counter it with, with your own story. And you're right. That's what people really engage with. And it's so difficult to come across. And it's it's quite difficult to get it right because you don't want to go over the top and tell them too much. You've got to get the story just right so that it feels believable and genuine. And and that and that's what people respond to because when I speak to um, clients, they don't talk about the firm name; they speak about the advisor's name, and it's always about them and you know how well they get on with them or how they love each other's dogs or whatever it is. It's very very personal. It's that sort of you're in that relationship where everything is very it's quite deep, you know, because you're sharing so much personal information and people are helping you think about big things like retirement and what you want to do with your life and how you're going to look after your children and all of those things. So it's quite intense. So you can see why that kind of story relayed a bit further, further back. So on a website would really work, especially against the, the context of what we were talking about with a lot of the traditional messages and the traditional look and feel that's what's so great about this profession, because if you put a tiny slice of personality in, in all of that, you'll get noticed quite easily. I think another aspect is obviously language as well. And, and, and kind of, you know, this is a this is a sector that could quite easily saturate itself in uh, in kind of terms and jargon and uh, get lost. I, I know that this is something that's important to you, but there's a really, really strong need to kind of become quite human in the way that we articulate and uh, and express the value of what we're doing yes yeah that's another fascinating aspect of it because like as with everything we've just said it's it's easy to fall back behind these stock phrases because they've been signed off and used for you know years and years and you don't want to mess with that but actually if you if you do break all that down you think well, what is it we really want to say and it is hard work. It's hard to get to that because it, I know myself, if I'm in a rush, I'll just stick a phrase down or, you know, get me to the deadline. But does it actually mean anything? It's really, you know, it, it's it's so easy to just put things together that don't sound very believable or engaging. And if you can yeah, explain those things, break it down, then you'll stand out so easily and get people's attention and help them. And they'll really, really value it. And there's so many of um, there's so many quirky ways of doing this and interesting kind of disruptor businesses that are doing things, particularly in the protection market, actually, when it comes to life insurance and things. And, you know, no one wants to talk about death. So there's a few really kind of interesting apps and things which are just talking about it upfront in quite a cheeky way. And sometimes, you know, it's too playful and it's too much the other end and it's maybe too simplistic. But that's obviously who they're aiming for they're aiming for maybe a younger demographic a mass market approach they don't worry so much about you know pe- people's professional need to, to speak to a professional but it's interesting just to keep your eye open and have a look at all of that and see how things are moving because it's very much moving in that direction because there's so much way so far to go there still we all know about innocent smoothies and that's old hat now and every single kind of drink and salad will now talk to you and ask how your day is going but in in finance that hasn't I wouldn't want it to happen but obviously there's a bit more leeway there we can we can start to break it down and be a bit more a bit less stiff upper lip about things and everything will still be okay so I think that's where it's quite interesting because it's 
still all to play for in that space. Yeah, you know, it's ultimately about shaping life aspirations and life goals. You, you know, there really does need to be a place where you can be very human in the way that you talk about what you're doing. I guess another sort of adjunct to that is the kind of the, the explosion of, of brand purpose and business purpose that's has happened over the sort of last five or six years. And obviously there's ESG happening uh, across the financial services sector, particularly in the investment market. Have you seen that sort of focus on sustainability and, and impact starting to trickle through into the sector? Yes, that's another really interesting area. That's a way that pe- lots of people are niching down into being experts on that. And it's it's been helpful with COP26, making it super mainstream. Even 12 months prior to that, it was seen as quite um, a niche thing. And now it's a lot more mainstream. And there's so much more that's in, you know, on TV about how to um, live better, live more sustainably. And so you can tap into all of those mainstream messages and make it seem relevant. That's what is really interesting about things like that. So, yeah, things like the pandemic at COP26, inflation, all of those big themes you can use to your advantage if you're a financial advisor because you can make it seem like you're relevant, which you are. And yeah, it's very interesting because, again, people, I didn't even really think about what my pension might be invested in. And speaking to a clients who, you know, have specifically said, I don't want to invest in tobacco because my husband died of lung cancer or something like that. And you can you can suddenly see how this becomes so much more engaging and interesting to them. And they can think about where their money's actually going. And all of these things are really advantageous if you kind of use the messages that go along with them to really explain what it is that you're doing. Um, so that's why it's, yeah, it's an interesting space because there's all of these things that you can tap into that really do bring something potentially quite dry to life. Yeah, and it kind of brings it to life and make it makes it real in the everyday, doesn't it? Because I think you know maybe that's also another way for for engaging a kind of uh, a younger audience is yes. is thinking about you know the whole sustainability approach. Great. Um, just a final uh, question then, Faith. We've got this little section at the end of our podcast that we call uh, "Worth a Look." Is there anything that you've watched or read or listened to recently that you think uh, would be of interest to our our listeners? I'm obsessed with Succession at the moment, so I'm watching okay. that. Yes. I'm halfway through, through season two. Um, yeah, it's just fascinating to watch something that's so full of evil people. When you're watching it first, you think, I don't know if I can cope with this. And then you get used to it very easily. Um, so it's very nice to be immersed in that and just to see how bad it can really get. Um, but it also makes you think about, you know, how realistic this all is. So it's it's quite, it's quite something. There was um, an exhibition I was going to recommend, actually, Um, I haven't been to it yet, but it's something along the lines of how we are going to be living in the future. And I think it's a physical kind of representation of what our living rooms might look like in the future when it's when it's all, you know. Interesting. Yeah. I think things like that are really interesting because, you know, everything's changing and things that seemed very out there a year ago and now you know what we're, what we're all doing especially now we're in this kind of digital remote first world yeah. um we're all becoming very much more aligned to that than i think any of us ever kind of predicted so i'm kind of interested to see how that might pan out in the future and yeah how we all retain our humanness but within this very very automated world and uh, yeah do send the link and i'll put that in the show notes so if mm. anyone's interested to find out more they can they can look it up Thanks so much for your time. It's been lovely to have you on Why It Matters. Really appreciate your willingness to come on and, and chat. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters has been put together by Spark Studio. 
the brand and design agency based in London. To find out more about us, visit our website at sparks-studio.com. Join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at hashtag whyitmatterspod or get in touch with me at whyitmatters at sparks-studio.com. Thanks for listening.